why we're here. We want to behold you. Um, and Lord, your word makes it clear that, well, that is what you call us to do, and Lord, we want to do it. We need help from your spirit. So I pray for us, as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would understand the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your people and the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe in you. So Father, I pray that we would leave here this morning um, being able to say that we beheld you with the eyes of our heart, that we might be changed. And it's in Christ's name that I pray, amen. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. You got your Bibles, grab them, go to Romans chapter 9. I got to hurry up and get to reading here because we got, we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, not so much in verses, but these are some very thick, thick, thick verses. Uh, and we're going to read a lot of scripture as well from outside of this passage this morning. So here we go. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 10. says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, or literally stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Would you just pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, Please help us. Please help us this morning. Open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, you guys know here at Mercy Hill, we believe that we are to be a people who are submitted to a book, to the Bible, to God's word. We believe that God has written this book um, and we are not just banking our financial success or just relational harmony or personal feelings of peace and happiness upon this book, but we are banking our eternal destiny. Foreverness, eternity, after we die. We are banking it on the promises that are in this book that we refer to as God's word. And while I think many of us may be willing to accept at face value the promises that have, been given us, that have been given to us in this letter, which is part of this book, this letter of the book of Romans that Paul is writing. Um, while many of us may be willing to just accept, accept at face value the promises given up until this point, and especially the promises, the magnificent promises given at the end of Romans chapter 8, 
Paul is absolutely not willing to settle for superficial theological conclusions. He wants to go to the very bottom of it all. He wants his feet planted on a rock that will not move, and so he takes us even deeper, asking what is, quite honestly, a quite daring question that we looked at last week. And the question is, has God's word failed? And he brings up the nation of Israel, because if God's word has failed to his ancient people, Israel, then you and I, Gentiles, can have no confidence that his word is not going to fail us. And the rock upon which Paul stands and upon which he invites us to stand is this rock of God's undisputed sovereignty over all things, including the salvation of sinners. This is what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about. It's a massive theological argument that Paul isn't just pulling out of himself or hoping to be true, but that he is rooting in the word of God. Um, And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, This week is some some thick, kind of bumpy bumpy sledding. I think it's very plain, but I'm going to try to take the time to make it as plain as I possibly can. Again, every week, you guys know here, I, I don't, I, well, maybe you guys don't know this, but I, I am literally, I bet you I am literally the least creative person on the face of the earth. Like, I do not have a speck of artistic ability in me. I can't, like my boys, I've talked about this before, my wife, they, they're good artists, they draw, I can't, like, even my stick figures are horrendous, I'm telling you. And so, I, I never um, feel a need to try to be very creative, All I'm trying to do is just look at what the Word of God, and week in and week out, and whoever stands here, not just me, but we look at the Word, and I just think, okay, what what does it say? What does that mean? Well, how do I know what that means from what it says, here and there and, and all around it, and in the context? And then, how would God have us live in light of that? That's all we're trying to do every week. And this morning is no different. And I just want to say up front that um, I want to remind us all that we do not get the option of creating a God in our own image. It's called idolatry. We create God as he is revealed to us in Scripture, and that's what all the Scripture is ultimately for, is to teach us about his nature, his character, and his ways, who he is and who we are in light of that. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And so there's kind of like, if you like outlines, here's, um, we're not going to spend equal time on each one of these parts, but here's kind of the way this little section, the verses that I just read, broke down. You have an illustration, an explanation, um, a, a, a question or a complaint, and then a conclusion. So the illustration, the ex- explanation, a question, and a conclusion. First of all, the illustration. It's actually the second illustration that Paul is giving in this argument from what we talked about last week. Has the word of God failed? His answer was no, because not all who are Israel are Israel. And he gives uh, one example that we looked at last week, and that is the example of Isaac and Ishmael. Okay? Um, but an immediate objection would probably arise uh, in, in the heart of the listeners, because yeah, but Isaac and Ishmael had different moms. Ishmael's mom was Hagar, okay, who was Sarah's maidservant, if you guys know the story, and Isaac was the son of Sarah by Abraham. Okay, so same father, different moms. And so Paul goes on and he gives a second illustration as to why that not all who are Israel are Israel, is that there is an elect within the nation of Israel. There is 
an elect person, the children of promise, it is called. And I argued that anyone, even today, who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior is a child of the promise. It is because God has chosen you if you are in Christ. And so he's continuing with the second illustration now, not of Isaac and Ishmael, but of Jacob and Esau. So verse 10 says, And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and he says, though they were not yet, uh, not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, and we're going to come back and spend quite a bit of time here on 11, but then jump down to 12, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, he's, you see the illustration? He's saying again, there were two sons this time, not by different moms, but the same mother, not just by the same mother, but actually twins in the same womb. Esau comes out first, Jacob is grabbing at his heel. If you guys know the story, um, the name Jacob actually means deceiver. So what it means, we'll talk, we'll talk more about that. Um, but before they were born, had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob over Esau. Now, sit on verse 11. Again, that's, that's the illustration. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it. That's just what's going on. But now we're going to spend a lot of time in verse 11. Verse 11 is loaded, okay? And it's not complicated. Paul doesn't write in such a way as to try to be complicated, although we make some of the things that he says complicated. But it's actually quite straightforward. But he gives some qualifications here in regards to um, him choosing Jacob over Esau, okay? And because, again, because natural man is so opposed to this idea of election and of God's, and of God's choosing and of doing what he wants and of showing mercy to whom, to, to whom he wants, he knows that there's going to be um, pushback on this. And so we think, well, surely God chose Jacob because of something good in Jacob or because he, he looked down you know, through the ages and saw something in him that was, that was worth saving. And the, the answer, not just here, but anywhere of the Bible, is absolutely not. If there's one thing I want you to get this morning, it's something you've heard me say before, it's this. Brothers and sisters, grace is unmerited. And I think we know that, but then I think we immediately talk in ways that shows that I don't think we really do know that. Grace is unmerited. You may have grown up in a Christian home and you may have had good parents that taught you the word of God and that told you about Jesus and told you that you needed to repent of your sins and to trust in him for salvation. That's great. That's a gift of grace in your life. Not everybody's had that. But even so, God did not save you just because your mom and dad were Christians. He didn't save you just because your grandpa and grandma were good people. He didn't save you because of the line that he came from. His grace in your life, just like everybody's life, it is unmerited. It is because he is gracious. And to him be all the glory. Amen? All the glory. And so he says here, verse 11, there's four little phrases. Let me just read them. Verse 1. Though they were not yet born. Why does the Bible say this? Why does the Bible speak like in Ephesians 1 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world? Why does, it, why does it speak of his choosing and the decisions that he makes before we were ever on the scene? The reason is to take us out of it. That's the whole point. Is that this isn't about you or me. It's about him and about his glory and about his mercy and the display of his glory through his mercy and grace that he shows to sinners. <coughs> 
Whenever the Bible talks about God making a decision from all of eternity past, before we were born, it's to take us out of it so that we would not read ourselves into it, yet we love to read ourselves into it. We think it had to be something good in us. It wasn't. He says, though they were not yet born. That's the first phrase. Secondly, and had done nothing, either good or bad. So it wasn't that, you know, he saw something good that was like, oh, that's worth saving, or bad, like, ooh, no, I don't want that. They had done nothing good or bad. (coughs) The next phrase, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, this one we're going to sit on for a little bit. This is of the utmost importance. Though they had not yet been born, and though they had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, then he quotes the verses, the older will serve the younger, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated. Now, what does that phrase mean? What does that phrase mean? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Let me try a bunch of different ways. Okay, um, all saying this, the same thing. Let me start with some people outside of the Bible, but I promise you, we will we will get to the Bible. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on that little phrase, "In order that God's purpose of election might continue," he says this. He says, "What God's purpose in election means is clear beyond a doubt. It means that God's choice of Isaac, not Ishmael, and God's choice of Jacob, not Esau." does not originate in them or in any works they may have done, but in the mind and will of him who calls. Okay, um, The Cornerstone uh, Bible Commentary uh, puts it like this. They say that it should literally be rendered, if you, if, you, if you were taking the literal meaning of what they're saying, they render it like this. It means, in order that the will of God, according to his choice, might be determinative. Determinative. So what is the purpose? The purpose is that God will have his way. (laughs) His will will stand in election and in his free choosing. Um, Now I'm going to take you through a bunch of scriptures, okay? Not only here, we're going to start here in the context. Again, you're just asking, what does it say? What does it mean? How do I know what it means? You always start in the context. In reading your Bibles, you've heard me say this before, context is king, okay? What is, he, what is he talking about in the flow of thought that we don't insert our ideas our ideas into it? I'm going to give you, this is just my working definition for this passage as the pastor of this church, but again, I think this is theologically accurate. I'm going to give it to you, I'm going to give you the answer, and then I'm going to try to go around through the scriptures and prove it to you, and then come back again, and I'll say it again at the end. But when it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, If I was going to kind of sum this up, here's what God's purpose according to election means. God's purpose according to election is to display the riches of his glorious grace through his Son to all whom he has chosen. Let me say it again, and then I'm going to come and prove it to you, or try to prove it to you from the Scripture. God's purpose of election is to display the riches of his glorious grace through his Son, Jesus Christ, to all whom he has chosen. Okay, this, first of all, let's start here in Romans. In this idea, of, this idea of election or of his choosing that we, don't, that we don't really like. This is not a new idea that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 9. Okay, chapter and verse divisions, 
not there in the original. They're helpful. They were added very early on, and they've been helpful, you know, for the sake of reference and different things, but they're not part of the inspired text. The point just simply being is that this isn't coming out of some sort of vacuum. So many people read up to Romans chapter 8, and then they just forget everything they read, and they go on to Romans 9, 10, 11, and they're not really sure what's going on. This language was used by Paul before right at the very end of Romans chapter 8, and he wants us to see the link between the two, that he's not talking about a new idea. Again, notice this in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, you see the link, the end of 11, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Back in verse 28, for those who are called according to his purpose, you see that in verse 11? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. And then going on in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the very next verse, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestination and choice, election, they're very similar. Predestined simply means to mark out beforehand. That's what it means. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's why I say what is God's purpose in election? It's to display the riches of his glorious grace through his Son. It's all whom believe. Finishing up verse 29 there, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, in order to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. If you remember several weeks ago when we talked about that verse, one of the things I said is, is that we are conformed to the image of the son to the glory and honor of the son. Okay? So again, not a new idea. Paul had just been talking about this. But let's look for a phrase, or some other phrases very quickly, through the New, through the New Testament especially, and in Paul's writing, writings where he uses this phrase or this language of purpose and of calling and of God's grace and of his, and of his choosing. First of all, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I think we've got this up on the screen. If not, I apologize, but here it is. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Listen, who saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. You see the link? But because of his own purpose and grace, which, and here's the eternity part, he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When God saved you, he saved you, and he didn't do it just because he woke up that morning and was like, yeah, grace, salvation, no. Whatever God does, he plans to do, and he plans to do it, he planned to do it before the foundation of the world. That's the way he rolls, because he's God. Ephesians chapter 1 Verses, uh, let me read here, 3 through 5, and then also down in verse 11. Again, there's so much time we could spend on this, but listen carefully, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. Again, similar language, before, Jacob, before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad. 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And why did he do this? And this is probably the most, the, the most um, explicit statement of how I tried to sum up what his purpose according to election is, is this next phrase in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. He did it according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. God's glory is the center and purpose of everything in the entire universe. And the very pinnacle of that glory is the grace that he shows to sinners. It is the picture of who he is, that he is merciful, that he is compassionate, that he is gracious, so much so that he, would, he, he couldn't just save us because he is holy and because he is just, but he is so gracious and so merciful. It cost him the death of his son, that he sent his son to take upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved. And we looked at this back in Romans chapter 3. If you remember as we've been walking through this, why did he do that? It was to display his righteousness. Because God does not sweep sin under the rug. He will not turn a blind eye to it. He will not just wink at it like some sort of an ornery grandpa winks at his grandson when they're you know taking an extra cookie from the cookie jar he does not overlook sin he takes sin infinitely serious so much so that he sent and his son very god of very god to bear the punishment that we deserve and he set all this in motion and planned it before the foundation of the world going on in ephesians chapter one let me give you some more ephesians chapter one verse eleven It says that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, marked out beforehand, according to the purpose, see the phrase purpose? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to, according to what? According to us who deserve it, according to us who are a little bit better than some other people, according to the counsel of his will. Within the Trinity, the Godhead, mysterious, we don't understand it, there is a council, an eternal council. But again, God is not doing things willy-nilly. He's not just waking up one day and just going on a whim. He plans to do all that he does. And he works everything, not according to us, but according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Are you seeing the theme? Are you seeing it? I'm not trying to make this up. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, what is that? It is to display the riches of his glorious grace through his Son to all whom he has chosen. This is what God is doing. Now, very important theological question. We're not done. Hang with me, okay? There's a, I told you we're going to read a lot of Bible today. That last phrase, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, careful Bible reader, okay? In the book of Romans, not just in the book of Romans, but in in much of Paul's writing, when Paul contrasts works with something, what does he usually contrast works with? He contrasts not by works, but by what? 
Starts with an F, ends with an eighth. Not works, but what? Okay, very good. This is all over, right? Okay, so we, earlier on, again, Romans chapter 3, this has been the whole thing. Again, what's the thing Paul hammered away at? How are we, we are, the primary word he uses in the book of Romans to talk about our salvation is this, this legal word, justified, that we're declared righteous before God. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. You guys remember this? Okay, and so usually Paul contrasts works with faith. Okay, so for example, Romans chapter 3, Verse 27, 28, he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. Galatians 2, 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Now, here's what I want to point out, is here, Paul does not contrast works with faith. He contrasts works with him who calls, and the him is God, God Almighty, why? Here's why. He's talking about something different. In this passage here, he is not speaking of justification. Justification is only by faith. But election is not. Election is by him who calls. Do you understand? Again, I'm not trying to make this up. My only goal is to show you this from the text and the flow of thought in what he's speaking of. Here he does not contrast works with faith. He does that in other places. That's absolutely true. Hear me. But it's not what he's speaking of here. Here he contrasts works with him who calls. Because he's speaking about God's sovereign choice in all of it. Okay? Now, this immediately brings up a lot of questions. Hang with me, hang with me, hang with me, okay? We're nowhere near done. Hang with me to the end. Um, I would like to point out here that what this implies um, is that even faith and repentance are gifts from God. And they are. Uh, let me give you some other verses. And again, I please hear me. This... Um, as we go through this, I, I have 40 to 50 minutes, okay? 60 minutes, if, you know, you're willing to hang with me. Um, it's a lot to throw in here, but I'm trying to do the best I can to give you this. L let me show, give you some other, other scriptures that show that even faith and repentance are gifts from God. First of all, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. 2 Timothy 2 says, And the Lord's servant, now he's speaking to Timothy who's dealing with some difficult people that want to oppose his message, okay? And he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here's the next phrase. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. You say, I chose Jesus. I put my faith and trust in him. I turned. I chose to turn. I chose to repent. Yes, you absolutely did, and you absolutely did it because God gifted it to you. In regards to faith, very similar language, but here speaking more of faith and belief. 
Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, we should not be frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you. And it's, it's, granted is the word um, charizomai. It's where we get, charis is where we get the word grace. It's literally graced would be the verb form, real literally in English. For it has been granted or graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Repentance is a gift leading to a knowledge of the truth. Faith is a gift granted to us in Christ Jesus. This is the way the Bible speaks. We're going to get to this in Romans chapter 11 again. Just, this will be a couple months from now. But in Romans chapter 11, now speaking of the current nation of Israel in Paul's day, but also apply, it applies to the remnant today. Um, <clears throat> but in, in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, you can see how Paul is still in the same theme of God's sovereignty and dealing with his people and the Gentiles and everybody. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So if you remember that story from Elijah's life, Elijah, awesome man, man of God, stands up against 400-some prophets of Baal, um, you know, calls down fire, you know, is, isn't afraid of him, but then a woman threatens him, Jezebel, and he heads to the hills, and he, and he runs away, and he's kind of wore out and tired, and he, when he gets to the mountain, he begins to kind of uh, complain to God. He says, God, I'm the only one left, and God's like, no, 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 no. I've got 7,000 people that I've reserved for myself. You're like, can God do that? God does it. He absolutely does it. God does whatever he wants. He's free and righteous in all that he does. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 11, he says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Who's at the bottom of it all? God. Why does he do it? Because of his grace. Who gets the glory? Him. In everything. So, we were just in verse 11 there. You still with me? All right. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, verse 12, she was told, two quotes here from the Old Testament, one, first one is from Genesis 25, 23. The next one from Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, the older will serve the younger. That's what Sarah was told, meaning Esau will serve Jacob. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A couple things, okay. A lot of things, but we'll just focus on a couple. Verse 13 of Romans chapter 9 might be one of the thorniest verses to swallow anywhere in the Bible. Yet I want to ask you this question. There are two halves to that verse, essentially. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Here's the question. Which half of that verse is most shocking to you? 
certainly to natural man, Esau I hated is appalling to us. And yet I ask you, Christian, who submits yourself to the word of God, should we not be more shocked and more in wonder at the statement, Jacob I loved? His very name means deceiver, supplanter. And which part of that verse shocks you more? If I can, this is going to be pretty direct. But a kind of diagnosis whether, is a diagnosis of whether or not you read the Bible in a man-centered way or a God-centered way. We will talk more about this next week. Please all come back, okay? Come, come, come on back. We're going to get through it, okay? Come on back. But next week, the question on the table is, I'll just give it to you now. Does God have the right to display his righteous fury against wicked people? You better believe he does. But just taking it a step farther then, are there any people who are not wicked? No, there are not. How will anyone be saved? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's because of God who shows compassion and mercy on whomever he chooses. Let's move to the question or the objection that naturally arises from this. And again, here's how you know you're interpreting this rightly is because it's very natural. In light of all that I've just said, certainly the natural response is, that's unjust. That's not fair. Exactly. Paul says that. Now he's going to answer it. It is fair. Here's what he says, but notice the question. He goes on in verse 14, knowing that this is how we're going to respond. He says, is there injustice on God's part? He answers it emphatically and immediately. By no means. So hear me, it's not that God isn't fair, but if you're understanding it rightly, that's exactly what you're going to ask. Because mortal man always reads and takes everything in a man-centered way. And if I could, just for a moment here, and I'll unpack this again from the scriptures. I'm not trying to insert this. This is all, this is, Paul says that he's going to quote here from the book of Exodus, and I'll show you what that is. But brother and sister, don't blow by this. If we're understanding it rightly and the objection is, you know, that's not fair, right here's a nugget that I need you to get. Brother, sister, dear friend, listen to me. Listen to me. You do not want fair. You do not want fair. Fair is an almighty, holy Flaming in righteous God who has always existed. He has never had a beginning. He is the great I am. He's just always been. He hates sin so much that he sent his son to deal with it and to die. You do not want fair. Fair would be for him 
to send us all to an eternity in hell. And for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, and by that I just mean this is where you come to church, brother, sister, you got to get this. We have gravel in our walkway leading up to our house with pavers and then pea gravel lined in between them. Yeah. Um, we also have some landscaping outside of it. A couple years ago, we landscaped for the first time and there was nothing there. And, we, and Hannah wanted me to lay down that black mesh stuff that keeps the weeds from coming up. Right? And I did it for a while, but then I just got annoyed by it. And I was like, it'll be all right. Um, and so uh, we, we now, though, you can tell where I laid the black mesh and where I did not because the weeds come up through. And so, uh, please hear me, I'm not the only one that pulls weeds, but I do feel a little bit of a sense of personal responsibility because of my lack of not listening to what my wife told me to do, um, to pull the weeds. And so almost every time I walk up our path of the house there, I, there's usually a few, and I just, I bend over and I, and I pick them up. And if you've ever plucked weeds, you know this, but it's like, those little suckers, you gotta get them by the root. You got to get them by the root. Because if you don't get them by the root, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't kill them. Brothers and sisters, this, what we're talking about here, of God's election, his choice, predestination, his sovereignty, that he shows mercy on whom he wants to show mercy, and compassion on whom he wants to show compassion. It, it is the little gardening tool, the shovel, that gets right down underneath every little bit of the root of man's pride. And it plucks it out once for all. And so I ask you, do not resist it. If you want a deeper understanding, a deeper revelation, and to live in the light of a deeper revelation of God's grace in your life, then you need to live in light of what Romans 9 is teaching us. Is God unjust? In other words, that's not fair. Paul says, no, by no means. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly fair. And he just simply quotes from the Bible. And this is a whole other thing that, again, well, I'll maybe do this through this whole section because I, I haven't gone through and counted them all yet, but in Romans 9, 10, and 11, it's just quote after quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament, the Bible, the inspired word of God. And, and one of the things I want to talk about is how Christian, like, the Bible is enough. You don't need a bunch of metaphysical, you know, quasi-science, you know, philosophical stuff. To, like, the Bible is enough. And Paul here goes to the Bible. In response to this objection that God might be unjust, or if I could just sum it up, and it's a fair, it's a fair paraphrase or a fair summary, it, it, that's not fair. Paul he quotes from Exodus chapter 33. And he says, for he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now here's the context of that story. Is in Exodus chapter 32, the nation of Israel, 
though they had just been brought out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm by the eternal God, destroying the most powerful nation in the world at that time and their ruler, Pharaoh, and brought them through the Red Sea and all the plagues, and they plundered the Egyptians, though they had just been brought out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm of Almighty God. They get into the desert. God comes down to meet with them and to make this covenant with them, and they decide to mold a golden calf. That's Exodus chapter, that's Exodus chapter 32. And a very interesting detail there is that Aaron points to the calf and he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And the Lord in your English Bibles will be in all caps. That's because it's the word Yahweh. Now please hear me, this is important because what Aaron is not saying is like, forget about that God up on the mountain with Moses. Here's another God whom we serve. No, 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 it's not that. He goes, The God that's up on the mountain, uh, this is him, the golden calf. See, it wasn't a different God. It was he. They made a God in their own image. They made a God that was easier for them to approach. It was their attempt to bring God near to them on their own terms, and in a way that was palatable to them. You guys know the story. God's anger begins to burn against him. Moses goes down, throws the tablets, grinds the calf up into powder, puts it in water, makes him drink it. The people break loose in total debauchery and rebellion. 3,000 of them die by the hand of the sword of the Levites within the camp. God, though, in his persistent goodness to try to work with these stubborn, stubborn people, calls Moses back up. Moses intercedes for the people, pleads for God's, for God's, for God's kindness. And then he, he goes on, and there's this famous passage in Exodus chapter 33, after all this has just happened, where Moses says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And then down in verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, he goes, the very thing that you've spoken I will do, for if you've found favor in my sight and, you, and I know you by name. And then Moses says to him, please show me your glory. And, and God's glory, again, I wouldn't have time to go into all this, like his glory, it's, it's what makes him God. It's the very essence of who he is. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. I will proclaim before you who I am, Yahweh. And then he says this in his self-revelation to Moses about who he is. He says, I am Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I have mercy. And that's the verse that Paul was quoting here in Romans chapter 9. But then he also goes right on. And verse 20 says in Exodus, he says, But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Brothers and sisters, if we had any idea at all about the holiness of God and his glory and who he is, I'm telling you, all debate about Romans 9 would be over. Isaiah, the prophet, 
prophesying the book of Isaiah. He gets, you, get to, you get to chapter 6. He's a prophet of God, called of God. God shows up in his glory. And again, our English translations, Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone. It's very, you know, Shakespearean, woe, woe. Like that, it, the literal idea there, and please pardon this, but I'm not, he goes, I, I, Isaiah, he is terrified out of his freaking mind at the glory of God. Job stands up and he finally, towards the end, he contends with God and though he's been faithful and like he's at the very end, he's basically like, at least tell me why, at least tell me why. God shows up in a cloud and in a whirlwind and again, very Shakespearean English, but it says that Job abhors himself. This, it's the idea of Job just like wanting to shrink into nothing, to hide himself from the glory of God. And, and, and while you, of course, have all the false prophets today that are on the extreme end of the spectrum who are out there commanding God to do this and I command God to do that and I just right now, in Jesus' name, you got to do this. I think while, while we call that stuff out and, and, and we obviously see that as untrue and as arrogant and as literally blasphemous, I think that many of us maybe uh, accept a diet version of that. A diet version that's a little bit more watered down, but to where we still think that God is at our beck and call. He's not. He has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion, and he shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. And brother, sister, if you are in Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, if you have been accepted in the Beloved, if you once were an enemy of God and now are a child of God, it is because of his sovereign choice. And let that declaration go to the root of your pride. And may we all fear and tremble because of it. Now, 1107, you guys still good? Kids ministry, let's say a quick prayer for kids ministry as they continue on because they are the ones that, you know, the natives are restless when the preacher goes long. But um, very quickly, and I'll try to move fast here. We've covered most of what I wanted to say or the heart of it. But first of all, in God's sovereign choice, which I've tried to prove to you is unequivocally true. The word says it very plainly, not just here, but in many, in many other places. Here's where, here's where a paradox arises. Okay? And you're not going to be able to understand this, but I'm going to argue that this is 100% true, just as much as all that I've already said is true. Is it this? Is though God is sovereign in his choosing, the gospel, when it is presented, is always freely, freely offered, and a person must choose to come. If someone is offered the gospel, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do not know where you would spend eternity, let me tell you right now, dear friend, the only way that you can know that you will spend eternity forever in heaven is by accepting the gift of Christ's Son on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. Admit and repent and trust that he did that for you and that the death he died on the cross is the death that you deserve to die and that his resurrection will also be your resurrection. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that gospel, it is freely offered to you. Wherever it is preached, it's freely offered to you today and you are responsible to turn and to accept it. The Bible teaches that unequivocally. 
as well. Two places very quickly where you see these two paradoxes held, held hand in hand very closely together. The story of the rich young ruler, you know the story. He comes to him, he comes to Jesus, says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Important question. Jesus says to him, keep the commandments. He goes, oh, all these I've kept from my youth. <laughs> in other words, Jesus is trying to get at the heart of his, sin, of his sin because he hasn't kept them. And then it says, and Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said, okay, one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. You guys know the story. The young man goes away disheartened because he had great wealth. Jesus responds to this in front of his disciples and he says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are amazed at his words and he says, man, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers the question. He says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, two things. It says, if you caught it, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I ask you, did he truly love him? He absolutely did. And he freely offered it to him. And the man of his own free will rejected it. And yet, a few sentences later, disciples, man, who can be saved? It has to be a miracle. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Acts chapter 13. Again, I'll try to move quickly here. Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Um, they're in a town, they go to the synagogue, the Jews ask them to come back the next Sunday, the next Sunday not only the Jews come back, but the whole city shows up, um, and the Jews begin to speak uh, blasphemous things and contradict what Paul and Barnabas are speaking. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, it's Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Then he says this, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Who thrust it aside? They thrust it aside. It was them. It's their choice. They rejected it. Just a few verses later, verse 48 of Acts chapter 13, listen carefully to this. Again, I know there's probably like brain fatigue sitting in here or setting in here just because we've read a lot this morning, but hang with me. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Don't read that backwards. It does not say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. And again, this isn't a bad English translation. This is literally what it says. Same thing we're talking about in Romans chapter 9. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God is free to do what he wants. You're like, Eric, that doesn't make sense. I know we can't, our minds don't fully grasp it, that God is completely sovereign and that man is totally responsible, that God chooses and yet we are absolutely responsible to choose and we are free to choose. But there's a lot of things like that we believe. And the Bible teaches them both very quickly. Who wrote Romans? Who wrote Romans? Was it Paul or was it God? Who wrote it? Yes, both. Paul wrote it and God wrote it. And it wasn't Paul wrote a verse, Holy Spirit wrote a verse. Paul wrote a verse, Holy Spirit. Both. Jesus Christ, was he God or man? Which one? Yes, there you go. Let me ask you this one. Who lives your Christian life? Is it you or is it God? Is it you or is it the Holy Spirit in you? Yes. 
Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Then the very next breath, this life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. How has God just always existed? He's all, I, I don't understand it. How did he create everything from nothing? I don't know. But I hold all to be true because the Bible teaches it. And the Bible is enough. So, verse, so finally the conclusion. So again, we've had illustration, explanation, objection, or question. And then the conclusion. Verse 16, and we'll wrap up. He says, so then it, 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 it. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What is it? What does he mean when he says, so then it? Depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. From the context of the passage, again, I'm just trying to show you what the Bible says, I would argue that it means those who receive mercy. And mercy and compassion, to what end? To the end of salvation. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Couple things as we close. <clears throat> Worship team, give me like 30 seconds and then just begin to walk up, okay? Because I gotta, gotta begin to wrap up. But you remember, I, I shared this with you very early on in the book of Romans. Um, Sinclair Ferguson said, There are things in Romans that are difficult to digest because they are hard to understand, but there are more things in the book of Romans that are difficult to digest because they are so clear. I know everybody wants to say that Romans 9 is very difficult and what does Paul really mean and this is hard, but I think it's pretty straightforward. I just think we don't like it. I think it's very clear. And let me close with a story of Charles Spurgeon and kind of how he summarizes a bit of his testimony in wrestling with these grand doctrines. Here's a paragraph from Charles Spurgeon describing the, the way he came to understand these things. He said, well, I can remember the manner in which I learned the doctrines of grace in a single instant. He said, when I was coming to Christ, I thought that I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea that the Lord was actually seeking me. I do not think that the young convert is at all first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths into my own soul. When they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown in a sudden moment from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge, though having found once for all the clue of the truth of God. He says, one week night when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking very much about the preacher's sermon for I did not really believe it, but the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord, thought I. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. Well, I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I, I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself again, how came I to pray? I was introduced to pray by reading the scriptures, but how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then... In a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author and perfecter of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace 
opened up to me. And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And as I desire to make this my constant confession, that I ascribe my salvation wholly to God. And I pray that each one of us could say the same thing. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the mercy and grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, truly, for each one of us that's here this morning and that knows you as your Savior, we just want to worship you for your kindness in our lives. And Lord, if anybody is here this morning and doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you right now. I pray that they would turn to you, that they would humble themselves at the foot of the cross, and that they would call upon your name. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.